0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Von Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security, and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy.
1: And I'm Steve Seidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. How's Europe?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm in Belgium, so that's different. And (laughs) I say this, but not much was actually different about traveling over here, except for masks and fewer people at the airport. Babies were still crying on the plane, and the dude next to me was snoring. It all felt very familiar. It's easy to get back into. And you're traveling soon as well, no?
1: I hope so. I don't have the... uh, official thumbs up yet, but I'm I'm looking to, to go to Europe uh, in about a month. I'll be missing Halloween here, so I'll have to find out what Halloween is like in Copenhagen if everything works out like it should. I
0: hope so, that you get to go.
1: Yeah, so do I. Let's get to it. You have beer and steak frites to eat, so uh, let, let, let's let move on to talk about the, the topics of the week. The first is, since our last uh, time we talked, the two Michaels have been released, and the Chinese made it abundantly clear to everybody that They were releasing the two Michaels only as a quid pro quo for getting their person back, the Huawei executive. So how do you feel about the state of Canadian-Chinese relations?
0: Well, I don't think that Canada and China will be taking this opportunity to reset the relationship. <laughs> I don't think if you have a different view, but it doesn't seem like that that's going to happen anytime soon. I was intrigued by both countries' allusions to the lessons to be learned from all of this, because I do, frankly, wonder what those lessons are. I wonder if now knowing the outcome, Canada might have done anything differently at any stage of this Mm -hmm. three-year-long standoff. And I also wonder if now that the two Michaels or now that Kovrig and Spavor are safely back home, are we going to signal a shift in Canada-China relations because there is no longer that at risk to them Mm -hmm. and their safety in taking certain foreign policy actions. So I'm really wondering, everyone's talking about the lessons to be learned, and I'm, I'm actually wondering, what those are, both in terms of the bilateral relationship, but also in terms of how Canada might behave in the future if it's faced mm. with a similar situation. So what do you think? Do you think it's right to be thinking about a reset of the relationship or is this utterly pointless?
1: Well, I think that really depends on what we do with Huawei. I think that's really the decision right now on on the prime minister's plate or table or whatever, that they've been deferring that for quite some time and maybe they didn't want to make a decision on that while the two Michaels were being held and now they have two tr- the two paths to go they could either say hey no we're not going to go with our five ice partners we're going to let Huawei you know into our 5G system as part of a reset but i think that'd be wildly unpopular at this point in time or they could say well you know, we no longer have this they, this sword hanging over our heads. So we can make a call on this and say that we're not going to have Huawei in our 5G system, which makes us more compatible with the, our Five Eyes partners, which seems like priority these days, thanks to the recent agreement between the British, the the Australians, the Americans on their submarines and whatever other technology stuff that might be going on with them. So, I mean, it, it, we're really facing, I think that is a key decision point and that will reveal the direction that this government's going to go and whether they think that they can. it's smooth sailing from here or whether they need to start to buckle down. And given how nakedly the Chinese, the Chinese government treated this situation in the, you know, the, you know, the, the very, very, very thinnest of of, hey, no, no, this is really not a trade. Yes, it's a trade. Kind of way they discussed it. I would be alarmed if this government, if the trio government decided that this was a good time to have good relations with China, because China clearly the lesson they learned from this is that hostage diplomacy works. And it may take time, but they learned that they could exert a lot of pressure on Canada and Canada didn't really do much to resist. Canada didn't give in, but Canada didn't escalate. Canada didn't really cause any significant pain to China over this. And so uh, I think the Chinese government has learned that, that this stuff works. And I certainly hope that the trail government does not immediately start to think about a reset because I, I just don't think it's in the cards. I don't think the the current trajectory of the Chinese government is towards accommodation and friendliness. And the more we're aware of that, the better we are to make ourselves less vulnerable to future pressures.
0: Yeah, and the the release of the two Michaels was mentioned during the speech that uh, Marc Garneau gave at the General Assembly. So this was uh, really shortly after the the election, and he mentioned that the two Michaels had paid a heavy price for Canada's commitment to the rule of law, and that moving forward, Canada would continue to push back against arbitrary detention and to call out hostage diplomacy. But as you mentioned, he stopped short of, of hinting at any other action in response to this whole ordeal which you know now no one can pretend wasn't hostage diplomacy so we'll see how the next uh, few months unfold but i think you're right that the big decision point is on is on 5g and uh, we've talked about this uh, several times including i think in our last podcast so i think we can definitely expect a, a decision at least if not this year next year
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i think that is the consistent thread in, in this government's policies is that they don't make decisions quickly. So, you know, the first thing we need to know is, is who's going to be in the cabinet, and then maybe there'll be new mandate letters, and then maybe we'll see some, I don't want to say changes or shifts, but a little more clarity about what the government is doing. I really don't expect the government to shift that much, but I do I do think on the, on the Huawei thing that they're coming to a point where they have to make a decision on that. So uh, that leads to the topic du jour, which is, who do you think is going to be the next minister of national defense? Yeah,
0: I I remember having this whole discussion last time around. I think mm-hmm. last time around, there were, you know, some rumors about Karen McCrimmon potentially being a contender for the position. She served 26 years in the Royal Canadian Armed Force and has been an advocate for changing the culture of the CAF, but she did not seek re-election this year due to health reasons. And, you know, perhaps it's best that the person stepping into the role this time does not have a military background because if you have been part of the culture, it can sometimes be difficult to see the problems for what they are. So we'll see why not a woman in the role. Tudor seems committed to achieving gender parity in his cabinet. So we could give the, we could see the defense portfolio going to a woman and a woman at the helm could bring new energy to the role, given that the sexual misconduct crisis is disproportionately affecting women. And then again, you can't just add a female leader and hope an inherently patriarchal organization will be all of a sudden reform. So I think it's important not to lose sight of that. What's important though, in this decision, or in my view, is that the person who ends up in this role, whether that person is a man or a woman, delivers on what was promised in a sensitive and compassionate manner. Just for the sake of all service members, we of course want to prioritize victims and survivors, but we can't lose sight of the fact that the journey of culture change is difficult work and it impacts service members on both a a personal and professional level. So there's that need to handle this, this file with sensitivity and, and compassion. And then there is just the heightened scrutiny that this minister will have when it comes to making progress on, on culture change. And that's my other sort of fear with you know, all of this momentum building and when invoking the possibility of a female defense minister is that it seems that when we reach a point in the organization where it's a crisis, we all of a sudden, you know, throw it to a, a woman to fix. And sometimes it feels like a, an unfair situation uh, to put someone in because there is no room for failure. And so very very often it seems that when a woman gets to take her uh, her chance at the role, it's in the most... <laughs> impossible of circumstances. So that's, that's my own two cents on that. Uh, But at the same time, there are you know many international security challenges that Canada has to respond to. Of course, the sexual misconduct crisis is a big file for the Canadian Armed Forces. So thinking about those broader international security challenges, I really do hope this government provides some clear strategic guidance that will empower the defence minister to chart a more decisive course of action, You know, along with the Minister of Foreign Affairs and others. Whether that's in the defence relationship with the US, we know there's a lot of change coming on that front with continental defence and the modernization of NORAD, whether it's Canada's involvement at the UN and military contributions to peace operations, whether it's managing alliances or, you know, at times managing rejection, as we saw with Office, But there's, you know, of course, that broader piece, even though, you know, my mind immediately goes to culture change. You know, as a big challenge for the next defense minister. I know you've speculated about this in the media. So, what's your hot take on who the de- next defense minister
1: should be? Well, my first hot take is that I better. I hope it's not going to be uh, Minister Saijan. I, I have a hard time imagining that they would keep him around in this position. But I, I think that would be the. I think that would be the worst case scenario: is putting somebody in who, who has basically argued in Parliament that his job is not to oversee the military. I don't really have any favorites uh, right now because I kind of wanted Catherine McKenna, and she's. Yeah, Yeah, me too. And so I do think the symbolism of having a woman makes a great deal of sense at this time. But I, you know, you and others who've, who, who've talked about this in the media have pointed out that setting a woman up to fail is, is not great. I think that that's kind of what they did to Kim Campbell long ago. And I think that's, that, that's a really a difficult position for any, any person to be put into at this, this point. There's been some discussion of Anita Anand, who's the Minister of Public Services and Procurement, and has handled that file quite well. And that, that might make a lot of sense because. What we really need is not somebody who's an expert on the military. What we need is somebody who's expert on managing a ministry. And you said what I was what what I was going to say was I don't want anybody with who has had a significant military career in this position. What we need is somebody who has expertise in managing organizations and in having good political aptitude but not somebody with military experience because that does put them in the wrong mindset. It makes them too connected to some of the people that they'd be dealing with. There's always been suspicions about Sai John's relationship with Vance and other people. And we need somebody who is who can actually manage d and the CAF. And that requires someone who is not of those organizations. So I think that's really important. But I don't know who's gonna get it. You know, the, the there's been some media who've called me and have engaged in some rumor mongering, and I just I just don't have any knowledge about who's likely. I just know know, you know, who'd be bad. So hopefully they'll make a good choice by avoiding the obvious mistakes in the next round. So we'll see about that. There's one other issue that's come up and it's partly come up because we're kind of in between, you know, the, the government of the day is still the government that ran for election the past few months, are uh, my f- favorite people on, on Twitter have keep on arguing that there's not a, a new government waiting. It's the old government is still around until it shuffles its cabinet. And one of the things that has been happening while Trudeau was off vacationing on the West Coast is that one of the individuals who are part of this sexual misconduct, abuse of power crisis, Major General Peter Daw. He was the officer who wrote a nice letter to support one of his sub- subordinates who was prosecuted for sexual assault. And so he got suspended for a while for for doing so. And now he's been put back to work, and he's been put back to work on the sexual misconduct file, that his job is to uh, go through the reports from Arbor and Fisher and Deschamps and figure out what recommendations. And this has caused a bit of a storm in, in town and, I guess, uh, on Twitter, because it's not clear whether this is just a stupid idea or whether it's a way that they're giving a chance for someone who is now had a chance to really reevaluate his stances, and this is a way to either have him do penance or to have someone who understands now better than he did. Did before about the context but it's sure a bad look how do you feel about this stuff
0: well there's also a third option you know for being <laughs> generous <laughs> and that culture changes is a huge area of focus for the canadian Armed forces as a whole now so if you look at positions of his rank i know that you know many of the senior general officers are turning a lot of their energy and attention to to this file and a lot of be- new positions are being created in that space as well to, to fulfill that need or change. So if you know, you're not quite sure where to put someone. This is is an area where you know, more people might be needed, even at, at that high level. So that that could be another reason, in addition to the to the two that you mentioned. But I agree that the optics don't look all that great, and certainly that's what was picked up in in the various Twitter threads.
1: Yeah, the optics are not good. So we'll we'll see how this plays out. But I, you know, one of the things is if we actually had a decent defense minister, they'd be out explaining this decision, right? They would. First, be vetting it and then they'd be explaining it. One of the challenges that we've seen over the past couple of years, but I think this is an endemic problem within the CAF, is that who gets assigned the various spots is up to the chief of defense staff. And the question then be, t- depends on how much oversight is conducted by the Minister of Defense on these choices. And under Vance, a lot of those choices were were made, ba- it seems like, based on who served with them in the past, who, you know, there's a fairly tight uh, group that has been running the CAF for for years. And, and so what Sijan should have done when people like Admiral Edmondson Mr. Mulligan man was being appointed the chief of personnel is he should have been, you know, at, you know, vetting those decisions, okay, fans gets to choose or got to choose, but it should have been subject to what the Minister of Defense thought about those choices, because otherwise, you're just replicating the old boys network and that has led to where we're at today and so i'd hope that positions like that senior positions not you know not who commands whichever ship but whoever is getting two and three star billets there's not that many of them should that those decisions should at least cross the desk of the defense minister and he should be looking at them critically and be able to say okay general air why are you choosing this person who is going to cause us a, a bit of a firestorm in the media what what is his added value to this position. How can I explain it to the Canadian public that we're giving this guy a second chance? Why is he better at this than, somebody, than some, anybody else in the force uh, of equivalent rank? It should have been explained. It shouldn't just have been something that popped out that got leaked to the media they should be on top of these things. They should be anticipating these things. So if you're going to make a controversial choice, step on, it, step up and stand in front of it. And I understand that, you know, maybe this was difficult before the election, but the election has passed. The election was two weeks ago now. And so they could have said, okay, this is the decision we made and this is why we made it. And it shows again, the weakness at the top of the hierarchy that they can't make Good decisions or if they are making decisions that have good valid reasons for them they're not explaining them either way that's broken and either way that they there needs to be a significant change at the top which has been a theme that I'm sure our listeners are tired of me hearing about since I've been yammering about it since February but since they haven't made progress on it I guess I'll continue yammering about it until we actually have a new defense minister
0: are we gonna bring back Steve's peeves <laughs> is that what's happening now
1: I just have one peeve and it's I'm not gonna save it for the end <laughs> of the podcast stuff it's 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 the front every day Every time we talk, it, it hasn't been resolved. And it's not something that we can bury at the end of our podcast because it, it really is very important. It's, it's not that one person can fix the problem, but if you don't change the one person who's been part of the problem, a, a big part of the problem, then then you can't say that you're committed to this. I can't help but think this is part of a larger theme that we saw last week with the Trudeau going off on Reconciliation Day to go surfing mm-hmm. with his family, that this is a part of you know trying to say the right things, but not doing the right things. It shouldn't be that hard to actually be out in front of these things. And this government hasn't been out in front of these things. So that's continuity that we're going to have until what? I guess the next election.
0: Fair enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to put you in a tough spot here.
0: We're going to be talking next about the UN General Assembly. That was the third topic of discussion. And even though one of the highlights from the last two weeks, it was very close after the election. And so I think it got. Varied a little bit, maybe in Canadian media coverage. You know, unsurprisingly focused on climate change, COVID 19, and conflict. And I always like to listen to the speeches. I find it wildly entertaining to hear the various world leaders talk on the world stage. But I was also just curious to see how President Biden would frame his remarks, especially after, you know, four years of Trump, where there was this very unique tone to Trump's speeches at the UN and about the UN. So I was paying attention to that. But I'm, I'm guessing from, you know, how you reacted to me saying, I find these wildly entertaining, that you don't find them wildly entertaining. <laughs> Do you pay attention to those speeches at all?
1: Not this year, because this year I had many grants to write that were all due this past week. So I was not riveted by the, the speeches at the UN General Assembly. Nobody was banging shoes. So I did, mm-hmm. didn't really focus my attention as much as, you know, Facebook being offline for a few, a few hours.
0: <laughs> that probably felt good, though.
1: <laughs> it was fun watching the snark on Twitter. Uh, you know, The people on Twitter were absolutely brutal about it. So what did you learn from listening to Joe Biden about his speech at the at the General Assembly?
0: I don't know if we're learning much from these speeches, but at least the tone was reassuring. You know, for a Canadian audience, at least I'm imagining for, for other allies as well, especially given that the alliance relationships were a little tense around the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The onus is on the U.S. now to sort of chart a new course and To communicate a coherent message to try to repair some of that trust and those relationships. But there are some of the highlights, I guess, is that the the U.S. will mobilize billions of dollars to support climate action and developing nations. Biden also talked about climate change being a point of no return. So, you know, obviously good to have a U.S. president who thinks it's a serious challenge for world leaders. And he also emphasized the importance of relentless diplomacy, which is the you know, the, the phrase that he used that was quoted again and again. So the, the tone was reassuring. He tried to say that the U.S. is not seeking another Cold War. It's just glad not to be at war for the first time in 20 years. So hopefully that marks a transition in, in U.S. foreign policy. On the climate front, President Xi Jinping committed his country to stop building coal plants abroad so that got some play and uh, china also contributed financial resources for the climate crisis and then there were pledges made on the covid-19 front you know those speeches are also a an opportunity for various countries to make pledges and and investments for various issues and so not surprising that covid-19 was front and center. And here, the U.S. has been leading the world in global vaccine distribution, and the pledge was for 1 billion doses to be delivered. Of course, that's already started, but the pledge has been amped up. And meanwhile, you had Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, saying that he wants to fight COVID-19, but he showed up in New York, ignoring the U.N.'s request that all representatives be fully vaccinated. A great
1: guy. Yeah, and I think one of the staffers was was a carrier during much of the, his mm-hmm. visit to New York. So Bolsonaro was not making too many friends in New York City. I, I guess the one thing I would I would note about this is is Biden can talk about the United States no longer being at war, but as long as it keeps on you know, sending drone strikes and airstrikes into various countries, it, it doesn't feel like the United States isn't at war. There's still a lot of kinetic stuff going on, even if the United States sure. has no longer got troops on the ground in Afghanistan, and the troops that are on the ground in Iraq are, you know, just doing training. We know we're still stuck in this mindset that if you don't have boots on the ground, it doesn't count. But there's plenty of combat going being going on. It's just not being done by by, by soldiers has been done by aviators, whether they're flying the planes or whether they're directing them drones via telecommunications link from Nevada or wherever else the, the drone pilots are. So the United States is still engaged in violence. It's just no longer the subject of violence. And so I guess that's what it means that the United States is no longer at war is that uh, Canadian people, Canadian troops aren't at risk, but it doesn't mean the United States is not still out there killing people.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And if you weren't listening to the speeches and working on, on grant applications, I know the deadline was on Monday. You know, do you want to share some of your, your new projects that are in the works or is that top secret until mm-hmm. you get the funding?
1: No, uh, there is a bunch of different things that were at work. We were seeking funding for the Yearhead Conference. We're going on it with the Yearhead. Uh, it's our annual conference in December. Whether we get the money or not, we're going to have it. We just have to figure out another way to pay for it. But it's going to be in person at the War Museum. I finally got permission from, from Carleton to have an in-person event off campus. I was also supporting two undergrads who are applying for Young Minds scholarships, mm-hmm. uh, not scholarships, grants. Cool. So uh, that, w- that was some stuff. And my Shirk proposal went in. And my Shirk proposal, Phil O'Gasse and or Ezekley, one of my former students from McGill long ago, We're working on sort of the next stage of civil-military relations. Phil and I and Dave Arswald are working on a book right now, finishing up the last year, on legislative oversight. In the course of that project, we learned that ministries of defense around the world vary in whether they see their job as overseeing the military or protecting the military from other overseers, such as parliaments. So... That project aims to compare lots of democracies about how well they do that. And then once we know that, what role do those militaries play in the making of foreign policy? So it's a two-step research project. Hopefully we justified both steps to SHIRK, And we'll find out about that one, what, in April or so, whereas the, the mine In <laughs> a super will, long time. So we won't hear about the, the SHIRK one until late spring, whereas we'll hear about the other ones November or December. So, so yeah, this was grant writing season, which meant that that took me uh, my focus off of pretty much everything else besides baking
0: well as long as you're baking those tasty treats you know anyone can survive grant writing season
1: yeah no that, that's definitely been the key to, to getting through this pandemic was was baking and then eating all these goodies and i guess it's time for you to exit your BNB, uh, airbnb and and find some great belgian beer and are you a steak freak fan or is there some other kind of bell are you going to go for the mules in freaky i
0: will go for all of the stuff and the freaks <laughs> <laughs> over the course of the next several days. I, I love both. So the steak and the moule and uh, the chocolate and the beer. It's really a treat to be here and to walk around and to be traveling again. And uh, thank you for getting me over that hump. I was feeling very jet lagged earlier (laughs) because I arrived this morning after, uh, you know, an overnight flight. So now I'm feeling re-energized and ready to take some air outside. The rain has stopped and it's looking beautiful and it passed six o'clock. So it's around dinner time over here.
1: Well, that's great. And for our listeners, their next step is to listen to Stephanie Hull, who I interviewed a while back. She was one of our Capstone scholars last winter, and she, speak, she speaks about moral injury. That, that's what she's been studying. And given a lot of the things that people witnessed in Afghanistan lately, I think her work is going to be particularly valuable because it, it really deals with people who, it's not post-traumatic stress. It's a different kind of uh, dynamic, where it's really about witnessing, being present at, or being involved in stuff that really challenges one's sense of what is right and one's, one's involvement in such things. And, and she does a much better job than I explained it. So after Stephanie leaves, stick around for for the interview I have with Stephanie. Cool, because this is yet another Stephanie-themed podcast.
0: <laughs> That's great. Uh, it was a, a, a wonderful uh, interview and I learned a lot from it. And I also want to wish you good luck with planning the Year Ahead Conference and what I know is difficult time to be planning such events. So good luck with that. And I will talk to you when I'm back in Canada.
1: Great. Good luck with your work at NATO and we uh, look forward to seeing you back here before too long.
0: Sounds good. Take care, Steve.
1: Today we have Stephanie Houle on the Bow Rhythm. Stephanie was one of our capstone scholars uh, this winter. She's a working on a PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Ottawa and has been working on Moral Injury in the Canadian Armed Forces. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Stephanie.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So first, can you tell us what this moral injury thing is? It's not PTSD, it's something different. So for those who didn't watch your presentation in March, although it's still online for those who are interested.
2: Right. So the term moral injury has really grown um, in popularity in the last decade or so as a term that's describing the psycho-spiritual consequences, essentially, of events that one experiences that really deeply transgress their core morals, beliefs, and values. And exactly what those consequences are are, uh, still being studied. But what we're seeing is that a lot of people who experience these types of events tend to experience intense shame, intense guilt, anger related to the situation, difficulty reconciling their experiences with their existing moral values. And this can cause a lot of distress and and often a lot of impairment in individuals. So that's why we're studying
1: it. Okay. And so it's different over PTSD in so far as it, both what causes it and how you treat it, is that was that fair? So
2: moral injury isn't, you know, a, a syndrome or a, or a diagnosis in the way that PTSD is. Mm -hmm. Although it is kind of this collection of experiences that we understand to, to cause distress. And PTSD, so kind of the classical understanding of PTSD as a syndrome, is one in which an individual experiences kind of intense fear, threat to their life or to their physical integrity. And this impacts essentially their fear system, is that they tend to perceive danger around them. They avoid any instances or individuals or contexts in which they feel threatened. When they experience symptoms like hyperarousal or vigilance to their environment. So these types of experiences that threaten one's life or one's physical integrity can occur in a moral context. So there can be a moral component to those types of events. So in the war context, of course, we're talking about for example, being ambushed by an enemy. One's life is certainly in danger, but there might be kind of additional complications within that situation when it comes to, for example, leaders giving orders that might seem difficult to follow or taking an action that results in, you know, collateral damage of some kind that those Elements of the experience can be kind of morally distressing to the individual, um, and in those situations, you might see maybe kind of an expanded moral reaction in addition to PTSD. So in terms of what might lead to these consequences, it's a little bit different in the sense that kind of fear-based events, we can understand as kind of uh, triggering more of a PTSD reaction, and then when there's this moral component, either with or without kind of that life threat experience, uh, then we might see someone experiencing more a um, those moral consequences and psychological distress related to that. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. And so I guess the question then is, is once one suffers from moral injury, what does one do with that person? Mm -hmm. Listen,
2: I think what we're noticing first and foremost is we're still really trying to study and understand the most common aspects of these experiences Mm -hmm. because they're not all created equal for people. And, you know, in the way that we understand trauma classically as being kind of a fear-based event is we can understand that there are aspects an experience of, of a car crash or of mm. being in a being in an ambush that there's kind of an objective reality that this person's life was in danger when it comes to those morally transgressive events they're a bit more subjective so it's a little harder to understand maybe what would be common about those experiences so first identifying individuals that might be suffering due to those experiences can be a challenge, especially when these types of experiences come with guilt and shame and might be really difficult for people to disclose that they've they've had these experiences in the first place. Um, so that's one thing that we're trying to understand. So for example, these potentially morally injurious events tend to kind of fall into two categories. Mm-hmm. One in one category being situations in which the person feels that they've transgressed their own values, so they've committed an action or they failed to act in some situation, and that now that they feel intense guilt and shame, for example, related to those experiences. Or it could be that uh, they've witnessed a transgression on the part of others. So for example, conflicts in Rwanda and the Balkans where, you know, the, the CAF was on peacekeeping operations and they were kind of witness to atrocities, mass graves, and having, you know more rules of engagement, not being able to, to intervene and feeling perhaps betrayed by leaders for those, for being unable to, to enact any kind of action. Um, we're seeing that those two types of events of transgressions of self-transgressions of others might actually have different consequences. Mm-hmm. So in response to your question of, of how do we, how do we treat a person who is coming to us with distress of moral injury? I think first we need to understand what's at the root. Of their moral injury Mm -hmm. and create a context in which the person feels first and foremost comfortable talking about their experiences because we know from from research on trauma that just talking about one's experiences can be really healing but there is some research also that's coming out to show that approaches that foster forgiveness of oneself and others as well Mm -hmm. as um, compassion of self and others actions that bring a person's community into into the dialogue also and helping people feel connected once more to others, to their communities, can be really healing as well. But we still have a lot of work to do to, to understand exactly what might be most helpful.
1: And so you're currently doing an internship, right? Is, is it focused on, on people suffering from moral injury or is it doing other stuff?
2: Not right now. No, right now I'm doing my... my- pre-doctoral clinical residency. And so I'm focusing more on uh, general mental health and uh, and health psychology. But I did do one year of my clinical training at the uh, Operational Trauma and Stress Support Center within Canadian Forces Health Services. So there I did uh, I was able to
1: work with veterans directly and gain some experience working with these issues. And so by doing that, that's given you some insight into the actual research you're doing, this sort of connecting uh, the lived experience versus the theories you've been exposed to and the, the science that, that, that's been come out so far.
2: Exactly, and and through the research that I conducted, it was exceptionally valuable in the sense that I was able to sit down with individuals who are actively distressed because of these experiences and really talk to them and try to understand patterns across these individuals of, of what is upsetting to them about these experiences to try and get a window into how we can better help people who are Dealing with similar struggles,
1: and so I guess the question is: Is what did you learn specifically from the sort of experiences, you know, the the, the, the internship that you're that is now causing you to rethink your your dissertation, or is it caused you to just think, well, your dissertation is perfectly fine? There's been no course adjustment needed. That you know, how has the lived experience affected your thinking about your research?
2: I think that being a clinician doing clinical research is special in that it really works my mind in the way that it, needs to in terms of acknowledging the complexity of some of the things that we're studying. Mm-hmm. So obviously as researchers we're operationalizing terms, we are, you know, trying to measure things, directly putting numbers on things. When you have an individual who's suffering in front of you, you're kind of going through the rolodex of all of your experiences mm-hmm. and and all the ways that you could potentially help this person and and living moment by moment with that person to try and and connect and heal them. And so Bringing those insights and experiences to the research domain has been really helpful, and I'm really excited to continue working in that
1: way. Great. I guess the question then is, what is the origin story? Well, How did you fall into this in the first place? Is is this moral injury something you wanted to do before you went to grad school, or is it something you discovered along the way? Actually,
2: when I decided to study psychology, I had previously done a bachelor's degree in French language and literature. That combination
1: is completely uh, sensible, well-worn pathway.
2: Yeah, well, actually, it was through kind of studying some of the philosophers, French philosophers <laughs> like myself and Camus, and some of the existentialists. Um, That I became interested in maybe the application of those types of of philosophies, Mm. and and I do see psychology or clinical psychology or psychotherapy in a way as applied philosophy, let's say, how to help people live a good life, help people understand what they want from life. So that was one element to it. And I think I also, I had some personal experiences with individuals in my life that were really touching that gave me a window into what military life is like, what deployment is like, and also kind of discontentments with, with the system and the way that it works and the way that veterans are treated in certain cases mm-hmm. um, and wanting to contribute wanting to contribute to that. And so right as I began my second undergraduate degree in psychology, I was interested in the concept of moral injury. kind of the seminal paper that came out on this topic um, was in 2009 and I started in 2012 to, to study this. Great.
1: And so too soon to say for sure what you're doing next, but what what would you like to do next?
2: I'd like to continue doing clinical research in the area of operational stress injury and moral injury. Absolutely. And I've been able to to make some really good connections with individuals who are doing really amazing work, especially in Canada, mm-hmm. but internationally as well. I'm affiliated with the the Moral Injury Outcome Skill Consortium and we're in the process of that's a group of researchers in in Canada, the US, Israel, and Australia, the UK, uh, we're working together to create an outcome measure of moral injury that's internationally validated. And Mm -hmm. um, that's something that, that we'll see come out soon. And I think that The tone of how research in this area is going in Canada from the collaborations I've been able to be a part of is a really positive one. There's a lot of good people working towards helping not just veterans, but their families as well. And those who support veterans and kind of the system in which we work to try and ask the right questions. And how can we address this issue and better
1: support veterans and their families and thank them in that way for their service? Mm -hmm. So what are the questions that people don't ask you that they should ask you? I'm asking you to do my homework for me.
2: I don't know if it's something that I know that other people don't know, but I, I do have questions that I would like to see asked. Mm. And I'm obviously a young researcher just kind of entering into, into the research and clinical environment after you know being trained. And I would like to reflect and encourage others to reflect on the way that we currently understand mental health in our system i think that there has often been this diagnosis to treatment kind of linear understanding of if you have a certain diagnosis you can you can lead to a certain treatment and that is you know x percent effective you know It's long been understood that the treatments that we have for PTSD, for example, are less effective in the military and veteran population. And that's been a question that researchers have been trying to to deal with for a long time. And I think that That studying moral injury in particular and and understanding the complexity and kind of the humanness behind the experiences that soldiers have in in contexts in which their morals are transgressed really should shed a light for us on the way that we're working and taking into account the complexity of the individual in front of us not always just um, a diagnosis. And so it's kind of, yeah, a question that I'd like to, to put out there for others is, in a sense, how did we miss this, I guess, of, you know, this is something that we're understanding right now to be extremely core to the experiences of a large number of veterans, and that is responsible for a lot of suffering. And, you know, in the clinical domain, this is something that I think we've kind of put morals and spiritual issues onto others perhaps. And now we're recognizing that this is maybe something that we should should have been paying attention to. So I think not just asking the question of where are we going and how are we learning more about moral injury so that we can help others, but also what are kind of the historical, you know, what has led us to this point where this has not been central to our understanding of veteran care up until this point?
1: Well, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing here. Uh, when I saw your presentation months ago at the Capstone, I was really struck by it because we in the non-clinical psychology field, That is everybody else besides you and your kind, you know, aren't really familiar with this concept and Mm -hmm. that at the capstone, you did a really good job of, of, of showing why moral injury is a thing, why it's important, why we should be paying attention to it and why people like you should be working in it. So I, I I think that you're making a really important contribution and I'm glad that you're out there doing this. And I'm glad that there are other folks who are also doing this because I immediately got from your presentation why this is a problem and and how so many people must be challenged by it at this moment in time. You know, one of the stra- I guess one of the ironies is that if we get clear ideas of right and wrong on the battlefield or in government, then we're gonna have more people probably suffer from moral injury as they are you know, facing situations that that confront their their moral moral being. I guess I don't know how, how well to put it, but it's, it seems to me that not only is this something that we should recognize more and more because there's people who are doing it like you're doing the work, but it may be that we are putting people into situations where they experience it more and more. And that's something that that makes what you're doing relevant now and will be relevant for the long run. It's not this not a fly-by-night kind of problem that's going to be with us for as long as we deploy people into situations that are difficult. I mean, the, just sending troops into long-term medical facilities Mm-hmm. is sufficient for creating yeah, moral injury.
2: And, and I think you're right that I think that there has been some acknowledgement that kind of the changing landscape of warfare, the increased use of technology, you know, the increased urbanization of, of conflicts, all of those things has contributed to maybe the ambiguity uh, of certain situations that that we're placing soldiers mm-hmm. in these days. Um, and so I in terms of of training and how to prepare individuals for these cases, maybe it's more about tolerating that ambiguity and being able to make decisions within that space than it is about teaching people that there is a right thing to do. I mean, I I think that there is a right thing to do in certain cases and and the rules that are in place in warfare Mm -hmm. are, are meant to have people take actions that are the right ones, but that there can be so much ambiguity in those situations that knowing that going in in terms of the mental health implications of it might be helpful and maybe we won't know that until we start practicing it but I'm not a soldier so <laughs> it's like to really be in in that space
1: well I can imagine clinical psychologists are put into situations often where they are faced with their own potentially morally injurious situations where you're talking to clients who reveal things that cross Effect various the world lines or yeah, yeah absolutely so I, th- I think uh I, I hope that that you don't face any injurious situations down the road, but I'm glad that you're doing the work that if you do, you'll be able to recognize it and get the help that you would need.
2: Thank you. Can, can I ask you a question then? Sure. Your perceptions on moral injury, how it influences soldiers, you know, given your background in, you know, policy analysis and what you know about defense, what do you think can be better done to to serve and to support soldiers who are dealing with this?
1: Well, it's interesting that you started out at the front listing a bunch of different possibilities. And one is your rules of engagement don't allow you to act when you see a war crime, right? I mean, that's a, that, that seems to be one of the classic examples. And then then that stresses you out. And so from a, a policy stance, well, it provides you with a couple of different ways to think about it. One is don't create rules of engagement that are likely to cause great harm to your own soldiers. If that means not deploying, I mean, this is one of the things you have to think about when you deploy troops is, is not just, you know, when, when we think about deploying troops, we always think about, well, what what's, what, how many body, Come over. How many ramp ceremonies are we going to have? And I think we should be more enlightened about how we do this. So the risks of, of of intervening should now take seriously wounded, because you know these days it's it's we're much better with the medicine. We're much better with getting people to a medical facility very quickly. So we then have to deal with you know the long term damage done to our soldiers. They may survive the IED, you know, the roadside bomb. They might survive the attack, but then they might be disabled for life, or they might face, you know, many surgeries down the road. And so we have to think as leaders, you know, leaders have to think about this, about what are the costs, what are the risks of deploying? And the more we know about moral injury, then that should also be taken into calculation is what are the likelihood that we're going to send troops into a place where they're going to witness war crimes and can't do anything about it. And if that probability is high, then I'm not saying we can't deploy, but we have to, should build that into our calculus. So I think. And more- what is
2: the implication of that on their perception of the organization as mm-hmm. well? Cause that's something that I think has implications as well Is if, if, why am I participating in an organization that is, you know, maybe not doing the things that I thought I would be doing when I was here or, you know, that the mission that I was told I was going to be a part of now seems more fluid or, or a little more ambiguous. And, and how does that affect cohesion in the military and how people... Talk to the public and to their friends and family about their military experiences and, mm-hmm. and the perception of the military as well.
1: And and also, I mean, the, what we're facing now in Canada the past six months has been very visibly. You know, this is moral injury is a component of the sexual misconduct and abuse of sca- abuse of power scandal. Absolutely, that we're creating situations that are more likely to create moral injury because we've created a set of rules that put people into really difficult spots where. The you know the duty report says we must report everything we see and hear even if the victim doesn't want it and so then you're facing a situation if you're in that you know either you report and you're doing harm to the victim which is morally morally injurious or you don't follow your orders which can be morally injurious as well I suppose so I think we need to figure out a way where we where if people have more discretion that might allow them to manage these situations that do less harm to themselves I would think.
2: Yeah, and the, and the potential for survivors also to feel so exposed in these situations as well could actually exacerbate some of the guilt and, and shame and anger mm-hmm. uh, that they feel in these situations, especially, you know, being handled in a way that is so public and, you know, maybe they're not getting the support they need or, you know, there's a lot factors.
1: Well, as I said, I think that, that you're you're working on the forefront of an issue that's going to be very important from now for a long time. So I'm glad you're there. I'm glad that, you, that you're doing this work. And I'm glad that you're sharing your knowledge with us so that we can know that these are some of the, the consequences so that we policymakers can take more seriously these other risks and design their missions in ways that try not to put their soldiers in, into difficult positions. I, I tend to observe that when I see lots of people getting medal, medals of valor, I tend to think of that as being a policy problem because mm-hmm. you know you only do that when when soldiers are put in desperate situations. Well, who put them in that desperate situation? And so I think the same goes here, where if we see a, a big boom in, in people having moral injury, then that's a policy problem because that's, that's a politician's put people into, into these situations. So I, I think the more we know about it, then the more the people in the policy community can think seriously about the risks of what we're doing.
2: I agree. I also think it's, it's very tricky. Like I think there's a difficult balance to be struck also in making sure that there is enough moral buy-in to a situation mm-hmm. to be able to accomplish the mission and to experience, you know, that sense of pride in one's mission because the military is an environment where we ask people to share specific values and that that is an important motivator and driver to engaging in military activities. Mm -hmm. And so we want people to have kind of a heightened moral pride or aspect to their work, but that can also create difficulties Um, so it's difficult to balance and and one thing that comes to mind as well is you know the increased use of technology and and just kind of the psychological distance that that can put between a soldier and their war fighting environment trying to understand what the consequences of that could be you know are that you don't want people to be completely morally disengaged from the actions that they're taking in a conflict so it's it's really tricky trying to find a balance between those things i think so
1: well uh i think You've helped us understand this problem and uh, we really appreciate that. So thanks for talking to us uh, today, Stephanie. Soon you'll be Dr. Stephanie providing clinical care to those folks who are suffering from this. And so I can't think of a better person to be doing that. So I'm really glad to have you talk to us today and for you to be out there doing this this work. That's very important work.
2: Thank you, Steve.
1: I have a real mix of things for this week's uh, RNR segment. The first is I listened to the residential schools podcast. It's done by History Canada. And it was three episodes, one dedicated to each of the three major groups, indigenous groups, uh, the First Nations, the Inuit and the Matisse. And each group had a somewhat similar and somewhat different experience. And so it was really interesting to listen to those three podcasts back to so back. That's that I, I did that on, on Reconciliation Day uh, as it provided some depth to sort of the understanding of what what Canada what we put these people through it is triggering it is disturbing and it is important. So I, I, I recommend it highly. Much more lighthearted, much sillier, although with much some heart attached to it, is uh, a new movie that was out in the theaters last month or two months ago with favorite Canadian Ron Reynolds. Free guy. He plays a non-player character in a video game, uh, very much of a Grand Theft Auto kind of video game where the Everybody else scores points by being a criminal and abusive. And he's just a, a guy at the bank and he develops his own personality and his own life. And it's incredibly silly and it's a lot of fun. And it, as I said, it has a fair amount of heart to it. So I recommend it very highly. It's, 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 it was a very, very entertaining movie and it's now available on Disney Plus. And speaking of Disney Plus, Star Wars invited a bunch of anime artists in Japan to come up with their own Star Wars stories. And so that is now called Star Wars Visions nine 15 to 20 minute videos each on Star on Disney Plus. And they range into what they cover and in what themes they address. My wife thought they were a bit heavy on the whole Jedi versus Sith thing, but I'm like, well, what else are they going to do? And they varied a little bit. I think like, some of them were better than others, but it was definitely a, a worthy watch. So those are my recommendations this week. As we continue to slog through this pandemic, I've, I found escaping through podcasts and, and TV shows to be the waiting to get by, along with the baking. So be well, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at cdsnrcds or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.